Welcome to the Light Gray Art Lab podcast. I'm Lindsay Knoll. And I'm Chris Heine. And this week, we're going to talk with two world travelers. Um, one of them is Brian Niggis. He has traveled all over the world and has experienced a lot of really amazing and sort of crazy things. And we'll also be sharing Laurel Maha's expedition. She has traveled all the way from the West Coast to Minneapolis um, through the Glacier National Park, up the coast, all the way to Vancouver. It might, it might be worth saying that Laurel traveled on a bike. Oh, yes. Which is a little bit different than just traveling in there because she's been on a three-month bike ride sort of across the country and up into Canada. What's great about both of our guests is that we don't often get the chance to reflect upon who we were before we started out and where we are today and kind of how our travels have changed us a little bit. But both of these guys have really interesting stories that help clarify a little bit about what we find most important in our own lives and also how things change in general. But before we start... Uh, we had a couple things happen this last week, which has been a lot of fun. We had the closing of the Omnibus Treasury show, uh, again, that featured all this great jewelry that were done by about 30 different artists, all these mini collections. If you missed that show, um, don't fret. We've got it all archived on our blog and on our website. You can see everything that happened there. Um, and in sort of celebration of all of the finer things in life, uh, Laurel came here this past Saturday for Spa Day, where we did a fantastic tea ceremony. We sort of relaxed, um, you know, had our cucumber water. Tarot anyways. cards. Yep, we did our tarot card reading. And then we also just uh, enjoyed the day. So um, Laurel did some nail painting. She did some really fun designs on a bunch of people's nails. Um, we were also here with Liz B, who, who did a lot of really great things too. And so um, I think we have images coming up for that pretty soon on the blog. So you guys keep an eye out for that. You can see all of the wonderful things that we did. So um, the other thing that we want to let you know is that Coming up this week, we will be announcing where you can find the Dream Arcade promo mini games. Chris has figured out a way to let you guys see them on the web. Yep, so you can just follow the link from the blog or website and you'll be able to play them right in your browser. So anyone who wasn't able to download them um, last time we put them out, we can try them out now for free and check them out and, and play them away. Play them away. So Doesn't again, make sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> those those games are just a, a tiny preview of what's to come for the Dream Arcade exhibition, which is going to be happening September twelfth um, this fall. And again, we're going to have how many artists participating? Um, it's almost thirty. Great. And so each one is designed a fully functional, fantastic platforming level. Each one is totally unique. So we're doing all of the level design to make sure that you can experience the worlds the way that they were meant to be experienced. And um, again, it's it's one of the only chances that we've kind of dived into thus far to have a fully interactive exhibition. So the walls will be lined with all these different stations. You guys can come in and actually tap away and experience it as if you were a tiny, small man running through a wonderful space. So <laughs> is that the best way to describe uh, it, Chris? Sure, yeah. Sometimes you are not a man. Sometimes you are... Oh, a blob. All sorts of different beasts and creatures. Yes, all of those all, things. Everything, men and women and everything else. Yes, uh, yes. Amorphous blobs included. So with that, too, um, we're going to have some pictures. Jenny and I are actually traveling to Icon this Wednesday. So those of you guys that are going to be joining us there for the illustration conference can say hi. You can find us, too. Uh, Chris will give you all the links and all the information for how to find us there at the end of the podcast. So watch out for that. But we'll be posting pictures and some information, kind of a recap after we get back. 
So without further ado, uh, we hope you enjoy today's podcast. We'll let you listen to Brian Niggins. <laughs> My name's Brian Niggis. I grew up just outside of Kansas City uh, in the suburbs of Overland Park. Uh, I went to school in Minneapolis at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And after a bunch of traveling and moving around, I now teach and manage the Sculpture Lab at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, as well as just continue to make art and write on a daily basis. You know, my work is really all over the board in terms of material and medium, but it's more or less centered around ethnographic qualities influenced by artists such as James Terrell, Buckminster Fuller, a lot of architecture, um, but then people like Carl Jung and David Abram are definite writers that I look towards. My latest work is really focused around uh, portraiture of different tribe members that I had met in terms of photography and then some sculptural objects, kind of their myth and ritual. Yeah, well, we will definitely link on the podcast so people can sort of see the things that you make because I think they're really experienced-based. I know that the things that you make... They have a lot to do with like ecology and culture. And right now, we're actually in the midst of the Omnibus Treasury okay. Exhibition, uh, yeah. which is all about jewelry and adornment. Um, totally. So could you talk a little bit about your past travels and your understanding of the people there? Oh, man, where do I start? Travel, travel really started for me probably at the beginning of college when I got to visit my good friend Marco Lari, who was a... Italian exchange student and I went to visit him in Florence and spent five weeks there and then I uh, continued to do more studies abroad um, in Ireland with you and Kenji mm -hmm. Akagawa and six other great people and then that led me over to uh, Rotterdam in the Netherlands where I lost all my money and lived in a shipping container in the harbor um, which was a great experience and then a month of traveling through Europe and then a short three-month residency in Beijing, China, where I got to um, help build schools, for, build art schools for kids. And then my latest trip uh, was a couple years ago now, was a two-month stay in the Ama region uh, with the Saliano tribe in Papua New Guinea. Uh, my friend Bethany Koch I was born uh, in Canada, actually, but grew up in the tribe from age one to 13. Her parents were missionaries, and she wanted to do a documentary on their traditional arts and crafts. So I was more or less her travel buddy through the trip, kind of got to experience all that. Well, it seems like, um, I mean, all of these trips have happened in the past several years, and it seems like you've gotten to sort of get a glimpse and also live in these cultures for a long time. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the major aesthetic things that you notice on a cultural level, their attachment to objects or certain symbols that they use um, across the country. Sure. Um, I guess we could just focus on Papua New Guinea. I think if we got into the Netherlands and then Florence and Ireland um, and China, oh my God. But I think of all of these places, I think the first thing to note is that everything that I had expected to be there was a misperception on my part. So huh. the, the act of traveling and getting to these places and experiencing what 
they actually are, how people actually live. Yeah. Well, um, maybe so, so different. can you describe what you thought you were getting into or what you thought you'd see? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of my research from Papua New Guinea had taken place in classes with Ruth Voigts and um, even a lot of anthropological studies um, and books and stories of indigenous cultures. And in some ways, like the word indigenous makes us think that there's no connection to the present. So going into Papua New Guinea, Bethany had shown me a lot of pictures and, um, you know, grass skirts, uh, gourds, a lot of naked people running around in the bush, you know, just stuff like that. And it was, it was nothing like the, you know, no, no masks, um, none of those kinds of stereotypes. I mean, and that was just really the tribe I experienced. You yeah. know, there's, thousands of tribes in Papua New Guinea. So going back to your sort of like initial vision of those things, I'm sure at some point those were items in their culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and they were. I mean, those things have really just kind of faded away. And they wear shorts and T-shirts now and hats and um, and clothes that have been donated by missionaries. And in some ways it's it's just kind of a status thing as, as well as a probably a decency thing that missionaries have ingrained into them and you know during the periods of conversion you know there's there's just been a lot of change in their culture that's been so rapid and lots of things have been fading and in terms of one of the the like traditional things that has really survived are the traditional things that serve as fictional items so they have they have bags that are called billums, and they're they're woven bags that are made from the inner strands of um, a certain type of tree in the jungle. And the women will make them all day long, and they're kind of these these stretch these bags that just stretch to like three times their size, so they can carry back items um, from their days of working in the jungle, or uh, they'll carry their babies or use them as cribs and. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those are very much still there. Do you think then that a lot of the things that have faded away were more decorative and that's stayed because of how useful it is? In, in some ways, even just entertainment-wise, um, you know, they don't make their own instruments and sing and dance anymore. Now, now they have cell phones that have come in from the coastal towns and they'll listen to ringtones over and over and over again. In terms of decoration, too, there's like a new form of decoration, even, which gets into kind of the status thing and and how these items function in their culture. So, like, some of the tribe members have shoes, right? And if you ever met a tribal member in the rainforest, their feet have two-inch thick calluses all the way around their feet. They're just these huge feet that allow them to grip the ground and run through the jungle. And, and they're, they're not supposed to fit into shoes. But during very special ceremonies or during their kind of pseudo-church services, they'll, they'll get all dressed up. Uh, they'll wear their shoes. It's like um, that's their one day that they do that? Yeah, or if they're, if they're going to a funeral. or You know, not everyone has been converted. We experienced 
uh, one of the women had passed away when we were there, and we experienced a funeral, and they, they went through the traditional as well as, I guess you could say, biblical funeral. Or So first they did kind of these dances and songs, yeah. and everyone um, kind of put on the body paints and uh, clays and got dressed up, and then and then they had kind of a service where uh, all of these tribal people were standing around. And funny enough, the leader's name is Bob, but Bob <laughs> kind of gave a little speech. The woman who had died was also his wife, or one of his wives. Um, so it was all very, very strange to see this like transplanted culture. Yeah. It seems really surreal and completely different than what you would think of. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you about this so much is because it is a culture that their identity from like an outsider perspective is so ingrained in dress and decoration and the way Mm -hmm. that they live. It's like wardrobe and their culture is their identity and the way that um, we see them. And so now it's changing and now things have um, sort of shifted to a more Western look um what that means for them as people if if all the culture is still there if um sense of identity is still there even though there's these big mass changes happening yeah and there you know there is still that sense of identity but it's it's fading they have traditional headdresses they have some traditional skirts but they were you know the the elders belongings and they'll sometimes bring them out uh, during like during the funeral, you know, or mm-hmm. during a big feast, um, some of the men might wear their father's hats. It it's a it's definitely a connection to their fathers, their their mothers, their ancestors, and also the hats are adorned with feathers or uh, even necklaces that have bones and mm-hmm. that are often from really great you know, victories of the hunt or even uh, wars with other tribe members. So only very few items are still there. A lot of that identity has has unfortunately come away. And through the conversion processes, a lot of those traditions were lost and mm-hmm. and the, the objects were collected by anthropologists and brought back to the States to be in museums and yeah. And so we see we see a conserved uh, or like a preserved moment of time from before. Like everything we see is from like forty or thirty years ago. So I know that when you were in Papua New Guinea, you got a tattoo yeah. from one of the tribal members. So I was wondering if you could talk about what that means and also um, how that fits, since you were not actually part of the tribe at the time. Sure, yeah. Wherever I've traveled to, I've tried to get a tattoo wherever I go. And they're kind of, you know, moments for me to remember certain people or certain things. And so when we were there, I I kind of told Bethany, I was like, yeah, you know, what do you think if they gave me a tattoo? And she kind of thought I was crazy. Um, And I started, like, asking different tribe members like what what the symbols meant for them and and most of all the tattoos um and i i guess i should describe my tattoo it's like a little zigzag line um four little zigzags and it's located right above my knee Mm -hmm. um 
But most tattoos for the tribe members are located right between their eyebrows on their forehead. And and part of that, you know, we never got so into it. It might also be dangerous to make an assumption here, but, you know, it's it's close to the soul. It's close to, you know, maybe ideas of that third eye, um, the connection to our conscious. So but they, they also had tattoos, like, on their cheeks, on their arms. And, yeah, and a lot of these, <laughs> these ideas of maybe connection to the soul or connection to that, I even think those ideas are kind of silly sometimes because when you ask a tribe member, oh, is that connected to your soul? (laughs) Um, Like, no, this is just decoration or this is, you know, this is just my identity. And, you know, when I asked everyone, you know, some people had circles, some people had wavy lines, some Mm -hmm. people had zigzags. Everyone responded that their tattoo meant mountains, which in Sawiano, they would say Tetiayu. And Tetia is a very specific mountain. Yu is more a general term for mountains. So Tetiayu is kind of the mountain of their home or the mountain range that they live in. And mm-hmm. the tribe I was in was located in a valley. And so I was like, oh, it's kind of a identity of home or place, the Sawayano have their own language. The tribe six hours away has their own language. So mm-hmm. I don't even think these tattoos could communicate to other tribes necessarily. But I had um, one of the guys give me a tattoo and I asked to see it done. And I didn't realize, you know, all the processes. Yeah. If you've ever had a tattoo, you... You know, there's ink and a needle gun, and it's really clean. And what we did in the jungle was we took a D battery that was floating down the river and chopped it with a machete, and there's this blue goo that comes out. And when it touches the oxygen, it turns this really deep, deep black. Um, And that color is so unnatural in the jungle that they used to use charcoal or ash from the fire to make a black ink but is that incredibly toxic (laughs) i didn't i didn't have the msds sheets on me while i was in the jungle so i'm not i'm not too sure sure about that but But, um you know they they mixed it with some water and you know i bathed with the guy and uh, we washed each other's hands and he had show, He actually gave himself the exact same tattoo the day before to show me what it was like, and mm-hmm. I was like, "I was like, so that's cool. I have a tattoo buddy now." Yeah, um, yeah. And he, um, so he put the, you just, uh, you paint the battery acid on your skin, and then you take a dry needle and you just start poking through it. Eventually, the pigment from the battery acid just soaks into your skin um and yeah and for a little while i had a big red spot around that tattoo Uh (laughs) (laughs) but it's gone away i think i think it's really interesting as somebody who's sort of welcomed into their tribe to have a symbol that's from their culture and other culture so i do want to ask you really quick i know we just have a little bit of time left but i want to ask you about the netherlands um, mm-hmm. I know you had a completely different experience there. 
um, <laughs> I know it influenced like your current lifestyle. I remember you talking about the Netherlands when you got back and some of the colors or some of the shapes and things sure. like that that are in their culture, sort of like embedded in their own aesthetic. Uh, for for people that might know the Netherlands or have watched the World Cup today, which they just beat Spain 5-1, to one, <laughs> um, the Netherlands is uh, nicknamed Oranje, which is orange. Um, so orange is just everywhere there. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I was, I was living there during the last World Cup soccer tournament, which mm-hmm. uh, the Netherlands uh, played Spain in the finals and lost, and it was just a very somber time. But um, and, you know that was that was interesting. I mean, they p- painted the whole town orange. The everyone was wearing orange. They flew orange helicopters and dropped orange flowers from the wow. sky, and uh, it was just very surreal moments there. And and that was, I mean, inspirational in a sense of this surreal experience um when you travel by yourself uh you have the kind of privilege and ability to just like totally get existential on a daily basis and mm-hmm. like be be with yourself and do these things and um and and in terms of my lifestyle um i mean you're totally right i had run into a housing scam and lost all my money. And the studio I was working for was like, oh, we'll find a place for you to stay. If it's not cheap, then, or if not free, then cheap. Um, and squatting is legal there. Um, but they, they couldn't find any squats available. And so we found an empty shipping container in the harbor that mm-hmm. was underneath one of their other workers there um, who was had been living on the second level. I don't know why he just didn't live Take in the, the first, first level. <laughs> but, but um, you know, his box had never been moved because he'd been living there for eight years. Wow. Um, and we just, we drilled a hole in the bar and put a lock on it. And um, I lived in the big metal box and we dragged a mattress in. And, and it, it definitely... Uh, humbled me in terms of, you know, what I actually need mm-hmm. to have around me. Um, you know, it forced me not to hang out at home a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was like, it really forced me to explore the city and and do a lot of things. Um, and it, it just changed my sense of comfort and I, I started to find comfort in relationships to people and yeah. relationships to being out with others. And yeah, it was, it was a total, it was a total shift. How has this changed the way that you approach adornment or objects or things around you? You know, I'm I'm a pretty simple guy. <laughs> so in terms of adornment and things around me, I I try not to keep too much around me. Everything that I have is, is very special. It has a very specific story. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, even the the artworks that I do make, they all have a very kind of specific anecdote or there's someone that I've that either gave me this piece. My adornments are, are very much relational. I do have some objects where myself and an artisan have created little objects for each other and yeah. like kind of little gifts. Those moments are really special. Well, even considering the way that you, um, I'll say, gather tattoos or gather things that you wear or keep, it seems like it's very eclectic and sort of in the moment, in the experience. It seems important mm-hmm. to gather it there. Can you tell people any upcoming projects that you have or anything you're currently working on or doing? Sure. Um, well, I recently published a short book called Soft Feet. Um, it's full of travel logs and reflections from my different journeys. I just had a small solo show here in Milwaukee of different photographs from Papua New Guinea and Paris. And I recently... Uh, actually, just today, I got back from the Linden Sculpture Garden here mm-hmm. in Milwaukee, who they've acquired uh, one of my sculptures and are siding it in their garden, which awesome. is a childhood dream of mine. <laughs> that is uh, awesome. Yeah. Do you have any travel or upcoming plans to travel? You know, all these travel opportunities have been very lucky for me because they've been either offered or... Um, lots of people have helped me get to these places. But my brother, he is a Navy pilot, and he's stationed in Japan. And I have not seen him for about two years now. And I would love to uh, travel to Japan and uh, see him very soon. And then what is your website? My website is really easy. It's just www.briannigis.com. Cool. Next up, we have Laurel Maha. She's going to be talking about her experience riding up the West Coast and all the way over to our good old Minneapolis. And she'll be sharing a little bit about her travels. So we'll let you listen to Laurel. My name is Laurel Maha. I'm on bike tour. I'm actually completing the bike tour this week. But I started from Oakland, California and ended up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I cheated a little bit. I biked all the way to Montana and then decided to take the train here because I wanted to see my friend and not fight the prevailing winds <laughs> in the plains. But <laughs> I did a fair yeah, a fair amount of this ride, and it's been quite amazing. That's awesome. So what did you say your background is? You grew up in California? Uh, yeah, I grew up in Napa, California, and then went to school at Santa Cruz and studied fine art there. Um, and did a lot of different stuff. Mostly I studied lithography and printmaking, so that's kind of my my background, but I, I love drawing, I love sewing, um, uh, what else? Nail, nails. Yeah, well, yeah, right <laughs> now it's nail art. I'm really having a fun time painting nails, and I call it tiny nail painting more than manis because I, I like thinking of it as an art more than, like, makeup or, I don't know, yeah. That's awesome. That's really cool. It sounds like you've sort of gone with the things that you're interested in in the moment and make the best of it, um, make tiny little designs. But <laughs> we actually just had spa day here at Light Gray, and it was great to see all your creations and um, fun bow ties and awesome nail designs and stuff. So that was really great. Um, but so 
if we go back all the way to the beginning of your bike ride, was there a decision or a reason why you decided to go on this big journey? Mostly it was my, my partner, Matt, has been wanting to do this for a few years. Uh, we had a lot of friends that went on bike tour across country, and he knew he wanted to do it right after college in 2010. But, like, we kept planning and pushing it back. And then finally, like, this year it kind of came through, and we're like, yes, we're going to do it now, like, starting in the spring. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do the whole trip, like, west to east coast because of my job, but that's what he's doing. And I just wanted to take a little part of it and share that experience with him. That's awesome. Well, that's quite a commitment to commit three whole months of (laughs) biking across many states. I was going to ask when you were planning this journey, how did you know what route you wanted to go? What I would assume that most people would have gone like up the coast or in different areas, but it seems like you're cutting right across um, and have ended up here so far. We actually did go up the coast um, starting out. A lot of people start north to south because that's the way the wind goes and then you get that push and it helps a lot. But all of our friends were up north in Portland, Seattle, Vancouver. So we're like, well, we'll just deal with the wind and it'll be fun when we get to the cities and spend time with our friends. And luckily, because it was early enough in the spring, uh, the winds weren't that bad and um, it wasn't a big deal. And then actually in Oregon, we rode through a big storm and it actually swapped the wind direction. So we had a lot of wind pushing us oh, up how north. convenient. <laughs> So that worked out really well. Yeah. So we biked up the coast and we didn't, we started out without a map. We just kind of went for it. And as we met people, they would tell us cool places that we needed to go visit. Like people said, we had to go see the San Juan Islands off of Washington. So we did that and places we never would have thought of visiting until we met these people. So it was, yeah, it was really fun. Seems like quite an experience to just sort of like hop on your bike and go and meet new people and, um, see where the journey takes you. Just let it happen. Um, is that something that is sort of in your nature to just sort of go in the wind? Yeah. I find I have the best time when you don't have any expectations and you just let it happen you always get the best results and meet amazing people and make friends along the way because like the element of surprise Mm -hmm. makes everything so much better. That's awesome. Well, it seems like to even watching you today do people's nails, it seems like such a personal experience to sit down with somebody for an hour and um, talk to them and really get to know what they're about and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some or who are some of the people that you met along the way that really changed your perspective or offered something interesting to your journey? Like I met a lot of amazing folks um, that just were inspired by our journey and wanted to help us progress. So Like when we were in Hope, uh, Idaho, this teeny little town, uh, we were staying next to a cafe because there were picnic tables and the lady who owned it said we could camp out there. And we had this woman come in the evening who comes to feed the stray cats. And then she saw us and like had a really fun time talking to her. And she kept, it was like we became one of her her pets where she just like, (laughs) she brought us food and like kept bringing us stuff and telling us stories and like telling us the 
the bear situation like watch out because i saw a bear in my backyard here's a photo i took of oh my it. gosh <laughs> oh my gosh that's so it's nice though that you can just sort of like meet people and allow those exper- experiences to come yeah. in you know that's really awesome have you seen even a big difference in like the few states you've traveled over like the type of people or the type of things everyone's like oh you should go to this restaurant or oh you should go look off the cliff over here or just the differences in types of activities in states hmm I guess like when we were in northern Washington Idaho Montana there's a a cycling map that goes through the northern tier and then we were following that at that point so those people were used to seeing a lot of cyclists um, vacationing through in the summertime. So they were like prepared and more excited to see these new people. And we had a lady, uh, like had her son corner us. Like she had a 13 year old son who found us and he was tailing us, telling us like, there are these cyclists, like let's try and get them to stay at our house. (laughs) (laughs) And so she like cornered us at an intersection. She's like, I'm on, I used to be on warm showers, uh, but I don't anymore because I have so many people that want to stay with us. But I look for cyclists and I try to get them to stay. Aw, <laughs> all these people sort of watching out for you. Yeah, yeah, it felt like that. Like there were more of an awareness um, around there, and people were looking out and trying to make sure we were safe, and just really excited that we were there. So that's really nice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think. Like, and I've had these experiences too where you're working on something for a long time and or you're doing something for a long time and all the days sort of blur together and mm-hmm. um, you wake up every day and you're sort of biking around. Um, so you've been doing this for the past three months because you're sort of trading in your daily life for like out on the road and biking. Um, have you learned a lot of different things about yourself along the way or a lot of different things about travel or how you want to live your daily life? Well, at first it was hard because uh, we moved out of our house to do this trip so we wouldn't pay for rent. In the beginning, I felt like, oh, my God, I'm homeless. Like, where am I going to sleep? We got to have a plan about where we're going to stay at night so we're not, like, the bums hanging out. I don't know. It was kind of scary thinking about not having a plan. And then as we went along and met folks and realized everyone was really positive about what we were doing and wanting us to take this trip, it became easier to realize, like, well, um, like, this looks like a safe place. It's out of the way. Like, no one's going to bother us. It's fine. Like, it, we're not going to go to jail because <laughs> we're camping outside or whatever. Uh, but also, like, when we're in towns, it was really easy to because we had our bikes and all of our gear people could tell we were on the road so they would immediately just offer their homes or their backyards and we're really excited to share their their homes with us that's really nice that's really awesome well I can only imagine too like um like three months on the road how zen it would be to also have all the time to like reflect on things and think about what's going on and um what the next steps are like what's your plan for when you get back because I know that that is coming up very soon. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you've come to any conclusions or thoughts about what you're looking forward to when you get back to like a normalcy. I'm looking forward to spending time with my dog again. He's <laughs> staying with my mom and I miss him incredibly. Um, I'm really excited 
to have a garden and be growing my own vegetables. That was something I missed having fresh produce and like there's no place to grow plants on the road. So <laughs> I'm excited to have that again. Um, mm-hmm. And having like a space to be to paint again because I couldn't really paint nails until I got to the city. It doesn't really make sense to paint on the road because you're always like setting up and cooking and getting the bikes ready for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to to paint and be creative on the road, but I'm, I'm happy to have that time again to be creative in my own space. Mm-hmm. Did you bring a sketchbook with you or a journal or anything? I definitely did. Yeah, I made like cut down my books so they would fit in my bag and like made a little watercolor kit with like magnets so I could I don't know, change out the colors as I needed and I didn't get to watercolor as much as I wanted, but when we did stop and I'd go to a beach or go to a forest, I would take the time and do little sketches with that. That's awesome. That's really nice. Well, I know that we're planning some travel experiences here soon, so we're also trying to figure out how to do things on the road and how that drastically changes Mm. the type of work that you make and how you work. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that anything that you've learned along the way as far as um, like doing things that are non-material or being in a space where you don't have a place to work or a place to make or things like that, do you think that that's impacted how you're going to be living or how you're going to be making? Like I can um, give you an example. In the last interview, we talked to Brian, and he, in the Netherlands, had to live in a shipping container for three months. And so the difference is in his lifestyle now, the way that he sort of thinks about space and how much space is necessary, things like that. Um, Do you think that this bike tour will sort of change your perspective on living or how much you need or where you want to be? Definitely. I like during the bike tour, I had a dream about going home and like going through rooms and rooms of like clothes and figuring out like, why, why did I need this in the first place? Like I only had like two outfits on this trip and realize like that's all I really need like I miss jeans but that's probably (laughs) the worst (laughs) of it like it's not that terrible um I definitely would like to live more simply um and I think it'll be easier to like look at it now that I've with fresh eyes now that I've Mm -hmm. done my own thing for three months and realize like no I don't need all this piles of fabric and 30 coats like it's it's not as important right right well I was gonna ask too I know you started your nail art business is it pizza perfect nails yeah right before your trip started is that right yeah I guess I came up with the name in February I'd been painting for a couple years before but I wanted to give it a name so that people could look for it look Mm -hmm. for the stuff I've been doing and I didn't know I was going to be painting on the road, but I couldn't imagine a life not painting nails. <laughs> so, well, it seems so funny, like like a rugged bike ride and painting nails, and mm-hmm. it seems like such a funny pairing of things. But yeah. it actually makes a lot of sense, and it's it's about like sitting down and having an experience and doing some painting. Mm-hmm. Um, did it give you lots of time to sort of think about how you want to incorporate nail art as a as a job, as your like hobby, as your favorite thing to do? Um, like, has this trip sort of given you opportunities to think about your nail art? It has. I realized that I definitely want to go to school to get certified, and then I could take the next step and maybe do this as part of my career, because it allows you to be creative 
but you're with working with other people and you get instant gratification from it because they're really excited and you're also collaborating a little bit about Mm -hmm. what you're going to do for this person and it's it's very rewarding I find so yeah I would like to continue doing this maybe on a more professional level when I get back that's awesome well I can imagine how how interesting that is to like sort of starting something and being really excited about it and then taking it on the road immediately like literally taking it on the road and trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what you want to do it's really cool everyone here who had their nails done seemed very excited about it and it was a really positive experience um, do you have plans in the future for things like this, or do you have a a big like big picture plan of where you want to be with nail art or where your creative things want to go? I'm not not sure about the big picture. I don't think I want to be tied to a salon necessarily. I kind of like the idea of freelancing or being a traveling nail artist and meeting different folks that way instead of them coming to my salon so Mm -hmm. to speak um uh there's one nail artist that I really like called um nail swag and she doesn't have she doesn't work at a salon she freelances and she travels across the country to LA to New York and everything in between and people come to her because they love her style it's kind of like a tattoo artist where you're recognized for your style and that's what people want so That's, that would be a, a nice place to be. That's so fun. I, I think it's it's interesting, too, that people would travel far or um, to get their nails done because it's such a temporary thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't last very long. And so having this, like, moment or this experience just in that very short amount of time. Well, that's kind of the nice thing about it being temporary is you can do something different after it's fallen off or you take it off. Like, mm-hmm you can go to the next idea that you have. Yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more, too, about the actual physical trip. Sure. Um, I, I I really don't realize how much I appreciate kind of like solitude until it is forced upon me. And I was just wondering, is is it something... You were with Matt, right? Yeah, my partner, Matt, he rode with me the whole way. Okay, until you got on the train and then he kept going? Yeah, he's in North Dakota right okay, now. So you weren't 100% alone. You were with one person? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so did you guys like talk on the road the whole time? Did you kind of just like both zone out and like get involved in audiobooks or podcasts or music or I guess uh, it just seems like a long time to kind of be without a lot of, I mean, you have the stimulation of the sites you're looking at, Yeah. but the interesting thing about biking is you're going pretty slow. So, <laughs> so you get plenty of time to in, appreciate the site for a long time. And then eventually, you know, I know eventually in States you eventually are looking at the same thing for a long time. So, so what do you do to kind of like cope with that? Or is that not a problem for you? I guess it depends where we were. Like if it was a really exciting place to be, then we would be talking while we're biking. But, um, sometimes, or a lot of the time on the road, it's single file and it's Mm -hmm. dangerous to be side by side and you can't really hear because of the wind or traffic. So we're, yeah, you're kind of in your own head at that point. And, what got me through was yeah audiobooks and podcasts and i just kept going through that and making sure i had enough battery life to keep that going for an 8 hour plus day and matt um had like a little boombox thing so he could play music the whole time and that made him happy so that was fine but at the end of the day then we might kind of like check in with each other and talk over dinner and 
So it is kind of like you're kind of detached during the day and then you come like home from work and you... Yeah, you're definitely in your own head for a good part of the day. And are you used to something like that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some people aren't. I mean, some people just don't know how to deal with like themselves, being alone with themselves, with technology and with, you know, just other people around all the time. Yeah, it's easy to like... uh, keep focusing on something that might be negative that's really bothering you and let it eat away at you so i don't know it it, i can understand why that could be difficult and that's why like music or podcasts would help me get out of that negative zone and start thinking about other things and i don't know start thinking about the future like things i want to work on and you know people i want to talk to and yeah and then did you bring like things to keep in touch with people? Did you bring like computers and phones or anything like that? Or are you kind of just like off the grid most of the time? Um, I brought a smartphone um, so that like I could help with mapping if we needed it and I could get in touch with people. Uh, Matt brought a laptop, but he did that uh, to film and edit. So on our blog, uh, it's a lot of video of our trip. Okay. Um, but we didn't really have internet. I was out of service most of the time, so I did a lot of postcard writing. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it, was, it was fun, like, telling people what we're doing, but it's annoying on the road. No one can really send you mail, so I have no, <laughs> no idea how other people are doing. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's cool. Well, I'm glad that Matt decided to film it because I felt like it would be yeah, a really like excellent thing to, to record the journey in some way, and I didn't know if you were doing that via, you know, some sort of journal or blog or your sketchbook or, you know, photos or whatever, but... yeah. Yeah, I feel like when, when I'm traveling alone, I feel like the act of kind of journaling it is a motivator, I guess, just to kind of be like, oh, this is something new. I should remember it somehow permanently. Yeah. <laughs> it is important. I, I did a little bit. I didn't do a full on journal, but I made an effort of recording like where I stayed every night and then like a highlight of that day, like in Highway 3 in BC, Canada, I noticed that there are tons of butterflies that tend to be dying on the side of the road so i was just collecting butterflies that day (laughs) it was kind of random but they seemed so special i didn't want to just let them die on a highway i don't know (laughs) something do you still have them i do (laughs) i hope i can pin them when i go home but (laughs) yeah that's just one little thing but yeah he he documented um, our trip extensively and edited it. That's what he studied in school. So he did an amazing job. And he's doing that on the road. So he's like yep. doing it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you can see when we rode through Glacier Park and climbed 6,000 feet and biked in the snow in the middle of June. Wow. It was crazy. That's awesome. Wow. Was that one of your favorite moments? Or was that, that was pretty treacherous? amazing. It wasn't that treacherous. Um, it was like a slow incline but the road wasn't open yet, and um, it just kind of felt like we were the first people to ever discover this place because we were alone, and it was spectacular. And getting a little farther up, you'd see all these waterfalls, and then the snow would start coming, and then it's just amazing being completely surrounded. And I don't know. I I, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. And That's awesome. Well, yeah. That sounds really beautiful. I don't know. I can only imagine like coming across that when it's just like freshly laid snow and everything else. That's awesome. Did you have any other really magical moments along the way? When we were in Canada, camping is a lot less strict there. You're allowed to camp on public land um, and no one will give you flack for it. So finding like secret 
camping places that uh, no one has been to before was kind of fun. Like we were next to this raging river with pine trees everywhere. I don't know. It was it was exciting. I, I like to think that I was a, a pioneer on this trip more than a homeless person. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very that's a very nice. <laughs> Um, so you said that everything was documented on the blog. Do mm-hmm. you have the blog? Yeah, it's on? called patchkitmedia.com. And you can see extensive part of our trip. And Matt's still updating it since he's still on the road. So. Do you, is he going to be on the road for another three months then? Probably, yeah. That's a very long time. <laughs> That's such he, a long time. That's yeah. really nice, though. Yeah, he quit his job for this. He really wanted to do this trip. So he's giving it a lot, his 100%. That's awesome. Do you think that you will do another big trip like this? Yeah, I think I'm hooked. I would like to go explore New Zealand a bit, and I hope I can make that work again because it's amazing being on the road. Well, I think I think that was really nice. Thanks for talking about your journey. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to this week's Light Gray Art Lab podcast. We have a new show coming up. Chris, do you know about that show? I know a little bit about it. Uh, it is Stacks, and it, it opens August 1st. And it's going to feature 62 zines that have been created to kind of pay homage to the days of old. And by the days of old, I mean every year since 1984. So we're going to be chronicling the entire experience. So if you somehow have missed out on any of those years in life, or if you just want to relive some of the glory days, you can see it through all of the eyes of all these great artists. Um, Each one has been assigned a year and each year has two artists. uh, So you can kind of see what 1992 looks like from two different perspectives. Some of them are very personal stories. Others are Uh, a little bit more pop culture related. All of the zines in that respect are going to be very unique. Each one has been lovingly crafted by hand um, in many cases. Some have really fantastic printing. um, Some have really cool kind of insets. A lot of really interesting things. And of course, each artist has done an edition of 75, 62 of which are going to be sent back to the original artist so that they get a full collection. And then we have just a limited amount left. So again, you can see some of the documentation online and to get the full experience, we'll hope that you can join us in the gallery for a reading room slash exhibition opening. And so that should be a lot of fun. Otherwise, all of those additional zines will be available online as well. So you can check those out. So if people want to find out more information about what's coming up, where can they find us, Chris? You can go to blog.likegrayartlab.com to keep up with all the news, events, all that stuff. It's probably the best place to find all that stuff as soon as it hits the world. You can follow us on Twitter and tweet us at likegrayartlab. If you want to hook up with Jenny and Lindsay during the Icon Conference, that's probably the best way to get a hold of them. Like us on Facebook and be kept up to date right in your very own quaint little news feed on Facebook. You can follow us on Tumblr, like greatartgallery.tumblr.com, and you will see all of the behind-the-scenes things posted from artists. We retumble all those things. It's a really good way to kind of see the process of what goes into the artwork. And you can stream us on Stitcher Radio or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, and last thing is, if you do listen, we would love for you, if you have a free moment, to uh, give us a review, give us a rating. That would be great. All right, you guys. Well, thanks again for listening to our conversations today, and we will talk with you soon.